when you go in hospital and you see suffering of people, your your point of view about life change. Yeah. It was completely unexpected episode in, in our life and it shake all our family. When he passed away, I I decided to, to finish my PhD, but I wanted to change my life. In some aspect, I, I, I didn't realize at, the, at that moment it would have been in, uh, in cycling or in sport in general. I just wanted to do something big, like live life in a really good way, in a quality way, uh, giving like 200% of myself in, in every day. Hey listeners, Jeffrey Wu here and welcome to HVMN Podcast. September 13th, 2018, that was a day Italian cyclist Vittoria Busi set a new world record for one of cycling's oldest and most prestigious challenges, the UCI Hour. Unlike outdoor cycling, the hour is uniquely absent of variables. There's no jostling for position. There's no reliance on teammates. It's just you, the bike, a time clock, and the velodrome, which is a circular indoor track. For one hour straight, the rider powers through laps, attempting to cover the most distance possible within the one hour time limit. Victoria is now the fastest women's time trial cyclist in the world, surpassing 48 kilometers in a single hour. She's the new world record holder, and we're proud to fuel her with HVMN Ketone. Victoria joins the podcast today, and I was inspired hearing her tell her story. I know you will be inspired too. We discuss what motivates someone to truly want to be the best of the best, the subtleties of velodrome cycling, and the power of an introspective mind. Before we get into this episode, I want to share something with you all. I founded HVMN more than five years ago when I was deep in my own biohacking journey, figuring out how I could optimize work performance. What I found on the web were sketchy products that made unsubstantiated claims or nootropic ingredients that you would have to manually mix together and basically be your own mad scientist. I wanted to change that and make elite human performance accessible for everyone. With HVMN products, such as our performance supplements, we take an evidence-based consumer-first approach. This is a founding principle that continues today. If you enjoy how I go in-depth with each and every one of my guests, take that a hundred times further. That's how we think about our products at HVMN. Starting today, we are excited to launch a new initiative that we hope adds real value to the show. Exclusive to our podcast listeners, Every month, we'll be introducing a new offer that you can claim by visiting www.hvmn.com slash podpod. This offer will last the entirety of the month before it becomes replaced by the next month's new offer. Essentially, hvmn.com slash pod is your permanent gateway to these new monthly exclusive to podcast listener deals. For the entirety of December, we're hooking up listeners with a 15% off our performance supplements line, a selection of supplements and nootropics that targets the essentials of energy, focus, memory, sleep, brain health, and metabolism. It's a well-rounded nootropic kit that is meant for anyone looking to take their performance and well-being to the next level. Of course, make sure you're on top of the fundamentals. That's sleep, nutrition, and exercise. There's a good chance you can get to 90% of where you want to be by optimizing those three basics. But HVMN performance supplements will aid you in getting that remaining 10% from human to superhuman. The link to the offer 
www.hvmn.com slash pod is also included in the show notes. As a podcast sponsored by the HVMN business, this is the best way to directly support the show and our work. Of course, writing reviews and sharing the show with your friends is just as appreciated as always. Without further ado, enjoy this episode of the HVMN podcast. Victoria, thanks so much for visiting and coming by the San Francisco headquarters. Thank you very much. Yeah. First of all, congratulations on setting the new hour record. I mean, that's one of the oldest, most prestigious cycling records. Congratulations. I mean, that's a thank you. Thank I mean, you. it's a, an incredible achievement. Before diving into all of that, how San Francisco? This is your first time in the city, right? Yeah, it's amazing. You see photos on the web, it's really characteristic. And I was lucky to be already on a ride. Yeah. On the Golden Gate Bridge. And the weather was not really nice with me <laughs> because it was foggy. Yeah. But it's still so emotional. And yeah, the most beautiful thing is the atmosphere. It's kind of magic to be here. Yeah. Well, definitely we need to show you around the city in the next couple of days. So you have a very interesting story just personally coming from a mathematical background and going to cycling. For folks that haven't quite gotten to your story yet, where did that interest in cycling come from? How has your experience with mathematics informed potentially your cycling career? Everything happened really fast because when I started cycling, I was in Oxford finishing my PhD in mathematics mm -hmm. in the Oxford University. And I was out of competition. I, I was used to compete in track and field. And I was out of competition for a while because I decided to be full-time a student to pursue my dream of an academic career. So were you a high school track and field athlete or like college athlete? Uh, we don't have college culture in Italy. Okay. I did athletics when I was in Italy. So when I moved to Oxford, I decided to stop because I competed quite highly, but in a track and field. So Which event? I was running in 1,500 meter okay. and 5,000 meter in the track. It's like a middle distance uh, runner. Okay. Yes. I started to train for the 10,000 meter, always in the track, huh. but then I decided to stop. So who knows what I would have been able to do. That's I interesting. Going. I mean, usually when we have athletes on this program that are at the top leagues or, you know, Olympic team members, they've been playing that sport since they were a kid. Yeah. But yeah. you weren't cycling as a child, were you? No, as a child, I was everything except cyclists. So you were, cyclist. just, you were a runner. Yeah, yeah, I was a runner. Also because my parents were really scared about me falling from the bike. So I had two wheels on the rear. The training wheels. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like really behind other cyclists because I didn't have the chance to practice. But were you always interested in cycling? Yes, I like sport that you have to do alone. Even if there are teams in cycling, at the end of the day, you're just you and your bike. So I still think that cycling is something that you have to be just you. So like running, swimming, like tennis. So I have preference for a sport that involves just you. So you're not a team sport player? Mm, not you're an really. Individual sport no, I have player. to say, yes. <laughs> I tried volleyball but I didn't like much so so you grew up yeah. playing a lot of sports I guess and you just gravitated towards the yeah. individual sport I did many things and also swimming for a while but the thing is I was in running a lot of years yeah. when it started to be like kind of professional activity I decided to stop because I wanted to concentrate on the studies right so that was the point when I moved to Oxford so when you were a kid you're a girl, you're looking at what you wanted to do in the future. Did you want to be a math professor? 
that you want to be a professional athlete? What was a seven-year-old Victoria thinking about? <laughs> there are many things around because my parents always said to me, oh, you have to become a doctor because it's always good to have a doctor in family. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then, you know, it's it's always the your parents that give you advice, but right. then you decide what to do. And at some point, I really wanted to do athletics okay. uh, in my life. But then I met a teacher at the school and I just fell in love with mathematics. I even didn't know about a maths mathematics specialization at university. Mm. Also because I did the classical studies in school, like Latin, Greek, because Whoa. I was more so oriented. You, your undergraduate degree was... Not undergraduate, but high school. Okay, your high school. Yeah, okay. so was I did... focused on... Okay. Yeah, ancient Latin and Greek. So because I was oriented more on my parents' suggestions, so to be a doctor, to be like what we can say, like a standard job. So a classical study would have been the best thing to do. So right. I did classical study. And then I met this teacher in the school. She said to me, you're good in maths. Why don't try? And it was a nice what challenge. What class was it? was like a high school geometry or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Really basic because I don't know if you have here in US, but we have this specialization school, which is very more for literature, Latin, Greek, history. And we do not much about mathematics. Okay. So we had like two hours in total for a week of mathematics. Whoa, so it was not... really basic. Yeah. So it was completely a new challenge for me to then go to the university in maths. Because there you meet also people that come from scientific school. Right. So they do like three times what we do in the classical school. So you must have had some kind of innate talent because it's not easy to catch up if you've just been doing a lot yeah. less hours of mathematics. Yeah, I, I mean, did you just yeah. always have a knack for just visualizing the theorems? You know, I'm a computer scientist by background, did a lot of math, and I was a person doing math competitions in middle school and high school. Yeah. But I really respect folks like yourself who've been able to complete a PhD in pure math. I mean, it's... It was art. It's, it's hard to visualize. This is not like you can do quick computations in your brain. This is not like mental math, little tricks. This is like, can you visualize very abstract concepts and, and write proofs for them? So I'm just curious to just go from your perspective. Does this sort of naturally click for you? Like when you're going from high school math to being a budding math academic. What was that process like for you? My talent is that I can spend a lot of time on something. I am really focused person. I'm really constant when I do a program. I respect my timetable and everything. So I completely concentrated full time trying to learn mathematics from the basic. So I think I was like sleeping four hours every night to catch up with the other. And at the end of the third wow. year, when I got the first degree, I was the same level of the other and maybe more because I was really trying to catch up with others. So I have more motivation maybe than other people. Interesting. And then at the end of the third year, you have to decide between applied maths or pure maths. And I fall in love with pure maths. Mm -hmm. So really abstract theories that have not much to do with reality. Right. And I specialized in algebraic geometry. Yeah. And then I start to dream about going out of Italy for studying. So you're probably dreaming in like hyperdimensional space. Yeah. Like manifolds, <laughs> right? It's always something that I wish I kind of spent more time in college looking at because I think it is not necessarily practical in, in real life, but these are interesting topics to be able yeah. to grapple with yeah. in school. That's an interesting story because like you basically were able to catch up and it sounds like you credit a lot of that to your work ethic and discipline. Did you always have that? 
Did you just grow up as a kid, just being more disciplined than everyone else? Or was this a personality trait that you created for yourself? Like, where do you think that comes from? You mean the organization? The, yeah, the, the work thing. ethic, right? Like if you're just sleeping four hours a day just yeah. to do math and I guess what, doing math 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day? More or less, yes. <laughs> like... I mean, I, I definitely was not that disciplined. You know, I wasn't doing math and computer science for 20 hours a day at Stanford. Yeah, what was that difference? What, like, what clicked for you? I think I was born like that, like okay. seeing the life or white or black. So when I start to do something, I want to perform at my best. Which doesn't mean that it's the best, but it's just my best. So, so like, I, I would say I want to be the best at what I do too. And I'm sure the listeners, I, I think, that are listening to this program are also motivated people. But I think there's a difference between, yes, I want to be the best I can be. And then translating that to, I'm going to do 20 hours of math a day for four years. If you have passion, if you have like a goal, I think you can do that. It's art every morning. That's the worst thing. So wake up, go out of the bed and, you know, that you have this kind of day. Yeah, It's going to be like every day will be the same for a long period of time. Because you need to be like constant and you need to have a routine in yeah. your life without much other things around and be concentrated on what you want to do. Yeah. And so when you wake up in the morning, you really need the motivation. And it's the same when I did the hour. Find the motivation every morning. I think it's the key. Yeah. And what was that motivation for you? I mean, is that just internal? Like you just had a fire? Yeah, it's... Were there it, ever days where you're like, ah, I don't want to do this? It must be thinking for myself, it's not necessarily easy to sustain that kind of pace for such a long period of time, right? But not for you, apparently. For me, something that works is that when I wake up in the morning, I say, at the end of these days, I don't want to have regrets. And I want this day is better than yesterday and tomorrow will be better than today. So like you are constructive this way and you see like your life like constructing every right. day, day by day, your dream. And at some point your dream are very close. The dream is approaching. Yeah. But you need like to think like day by day. So I have the main goal, but in approaching the main goal, I don't have big goal. Like I see just one day and I say, okay, I want to live this day 200%. And at the end of the day, I want to be happy and without regrets about what I've done. So you break down this really, really long journey into yes, tactical exactly. steps and just make study products every single day. That's inspiring in a lot of ways because I think when people look at people that break world records, it's like, oh, how does one become the best in the world? And it's like a very impossible long journey. But if you can decompose that problem yeah, exactly. into small steps, then because every day is not something you can't, you can't do. It's too big if you think about the world yeah. project. Yeah. It's the same, the academic career or the hour record or my next project. Right. So it's too big if you look at the end of the tunnel. But was really? it ever like while you're at university, there's like a party that you wanted to go to or your friends wanted to go to a concert. How did you deal with that kind of social peer pressure? Because I think maybe one thing that is more of a commentary on society at large is that I think a lot of people don't necessarily have very clear visions of what they want to do in the future. And it's easy to lower your own standards in some way. How did you combat that? Was that an issue? Or did you just avoid people that didn't have dreams and goals? I don't avoid people that don't have dreams. But I think the main problem is slightly different from my point of view is that people are scared to be alone with themselves. So if you stay alone with yourself for a long period of time, it's art. It's challenging. So the thing that moves 
people to go out and hang out a lot too much sometimes is that they just don't want to come back home, be alone with themselves and think about the future. You have to be brave to decide about your future. You have to be brave to say, I want to go there. It's a big dream and it's not easy. So be with yourself and be honest with yourself. It's something that many people try to avoid. Sometimes I try to avoid and there are periods of of my life that I didn't have any dream, any goal, and uh, it happened. It happened to anyone. So you've always been comfortable being by yourself then? So it, that it's, wasn't it's an a issue. process. Okay. I worked a lot on that. To be alone is scary. For example, when I have to go to altitude training, I have to be like higher than 2,000 meters in a hotel at the very top of the mountain. Okay. And there is nothing around. So you spend your days alone because Refuge. you wake up. Yeah. Okay. You, yeah. you you wake up, you have to go on the bike and then you come back, you have lunch alone and all the afternoon is alone. Yeah. And this has to be for at least four weeks because if you want the altitude to be effective, it needs to be at least four weeks. Yeah, you adapt for it. Yeah. So you have to be prepared to be alone and your house is too far away. So you cannot go sometimes to, to your friend, to your partner. So you have to be prepared to that. And similar and, to when you're doing your math career as well. You're yeah, just, in math career, it's, it's you're, the same. You're able because, to just sit down and just... Yeah, you have to be alone with your thoughts and yeah. with your ideas. And you try to demonstrate a theorem. It doesn't work and you have to start again. And in the meantime, the whole day is gone and you have been alone on yeah. your desk. I've seen many people, for example, in Oxford, going to some coffee shop to work. Yeah. Just because they don't want to be alone. Right. And I did sometimes, but that is something that gives me the idea that people are scared to be alone with themselves. It's not that they don't have dream, but accept that you have a dream means also that you have to be brave, you have to sacrifice. I think that's something that strikes close to home for myself, the thought of introspection or thinking about being in your own thoughts and realizing your weaknesses and areas that you need to improve. I think it's something that I've spent a lot of time in my own head, right? Because I think when you're trying to create a dream or a goal, you need to really assess honestly where you are at today and where you need to go. And I agree with you. I think a lot of people don't ask the hard questions about themselves in terms of, okay, what am I like not good at? What should I do to actually change my life trajectory? And sometimes these are hard questions to ask yeah. themselves. So I think you lie to yourself that you think you're better than you are or there's some excuse that you have. And oftentimes it's like, no, you just no excuse. You're just like not good enough right now. Yeah. And like, what can you do to change to be a better exactly. version of yourself? Work on your weakness yeah. and try to sacrifice something because that is your weakness and you have to work on that. Yeah. And it's, it's not easy. Yeah. It's not something nice to do. So yeah. people just don't want to do that. But, but, but you like, have to do. If. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like, especially for what you did with the hour, like you almost are comfortable with the pain. Like the pain is not something to be scared of. It's just like, okay, it's like a natural no, process. No, that, that's not completely true. So you, you still don't like the pain? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so scared about pain. I worked a lot on that. Again, when I wake up in the morning, I know that I have to suffer. So how you motivate yourself? You need such a big motivation to convince yourself that you are prepared to suffer for a couple of hours at least. But also the routine. So wake up and do your usual breakfast. You don't have to change anything. Because you know that your stomach is okay with your breakfast yeah. and the uh, timetable have to be really precise right. because you want to avoid any digestion problem. So it's hard because every day is the same as the other days. So there is nothing that changed. So it's hard to convince yourself that you're ready to the day. Right. So you need something really big as a motivation. And That's again, interesting. So 
even now you've spent what hundreds thousands of hours training even that like the incremental <laughs> a thousandth and one or like ten thousandth hour of pain, suffering that's just as scary or you have just as much anticipation for that yeah i think it's physiological i mean your mind wants to protect the body from suffering so yeah. every training at some point when you start to suffer the mind sends to the body the message please I'm stop done. i'm done stop. i'm done yeah it's like a message that but you've told your like, brain to be like, shut up. I know yeah, what exactly. I'm doing. That, so that's the most difficult thing. Okay. So when the fatigue arrives, you have to like be prepared and welcome the fatigue yeah. and understand, okay, I'm doing fatigue. That means that I'm working in a good way. Right. I have to keep going because it's this the moment in which I will grow up right. as an athlete. At some level, you could say you're an expert in understanding your own physiological limits and pushing past them. Do you feel more confident that you've done that so many times that you feel more confident for the next times you're asking more from your body? I can say I'm more confident. But the nice thing about sport is that your body surprises yourself every day if you go beyond your limits. Mm. So that is the most interesting thing about sports. So how your body reacts to the message of the mind to say, okay, let's stop now because you're done. And right. the bad, if you go beyond your limit, then you have this surprise that you can go really, really far from that message. Right. That is the most beautiful thing, yeah. I guess. I feel like for me, I kind of revert back to my norm sometimes because like, oh, like I work really hard to run this extra pace or this extra distance. So oftentimes for a lot of athletes, you'll have like a new set point that you make a breakthrough. Yeah. You'll be able to push beyond your typical limit. But oftentimes a lot of people revert back to that same set point. You know, they have a good day and then they'll like revert back yeah, to yeah. their previous standard. But obviously for you, you're able to push your set point further and further and further. You have like a new baseline. Yeah. Is that just a discipline? Your body responding well to the training? What do you credit that in terms of being able to push that set limit beyond any other person? There are many, many days in training that your body doesn't respond well as yeah. you want. So because we are not machines. So, you know, sometimes... There are just days in which the legs are tired right. or you're not focused enough. So there are many, many days, maybe more bad days than good days. So what, what to do in case of a bad day? Yeah, Th That's really difficult answer to give because I'm the first one to throw the bike and start to cry and, uh, <laughs> and say, oh, it's the end. I'm not going yeah. to do that. But then it's the thing I said before, you want, to have no regrets at the end of the day. So, okay, let's go back home. This day wasn't good. Let's try tomorrow. Or let's agree with the coach another day of recovery. Yeah. So have a plan for the future. Not a big plan, but just for the next days. Help you to understand what's going on. It can be that there are bad days. It can be that the weather is bad and you cannot train. So you have to take another day of recovery. Yeah. And you took already a day of recovery the day before and you start to get anxious because you're recovering too much. Right. There are many, many obstacles in training. And also you have a personal life. So sometimes it's just you have a discussion with your boyfriend and you don't want to go out. So right. it happened because we are human and that's the most interesting thing. It sounds like another way to say what you're saying is that you have to be consistent over a long period of time. Yeah. There's going to be variation on yeah. your performance. But if you can sustain that level of dedication for a long period of time, I think people can be bursty in terms of, I want to be really, really motivated for 
three days and you're really passionate for three days. But I think to really be someone that sets a world record or break what's previously possible, you need to be able to hold that passion for years, right? So I want to talk about that, but I want to just close the story around your full-time math student, math academic. You went to Oxford to do your PhD in algebraic geometry, right? And you weren't working out. Were you exercising too? Just like casual running. So you're uh, casually just yeah. keeping someone in shape. Yeah, yeah, but you're just, not, yeah, yeah. like the goal of being a professional athlete was no, not was, there. Yeah, not in my mind. Absolutely. So <laughs> let's close that loop. So what was the story that got you back into, hey, I'm going to be a cycling professional? Okay, I decided to stop, but was never a nice decision for me. So I always kept my agonistic side in my heart Mm. and in the deep side of my body. I always had that fire that I want to go back to sport. What was the decision point? Why did you decide to go math versus being a track and field athlete? I don't want to give responsibility to my parents, but... You know, when you have 20 years old, you're young and you are really influenced by your parents. Of course. course. Also because I had a lot of respect for them and their career. And so I was looking at them like, I want to be like you and I want to have this kind of life and things like that. I think it's normal when you are not a child, but you are in that kind of age that you're a little bit uh, indecided about your future. So... Parents, in my opinion, have a good influence. They always give me freedom to decide, but I was influenced by them. And okay, they so like the role models me. kind of education. Yeah. Okay. They suggested me to go on with university and they gave me freedom to go out for study. So I was lucky enough to be able to study without working which is a privilege because not everyone can study full-time in such a good university like Oxford. So I think I was lucky and I don't have regrets about that also because I still love maths and I miss maths and when again, I like read papers and things like that. But then a bad thing in my life, I've lost my father. That was really a long process because he got a stroke. So I was commuting one year between Oxford and Rome, my city to visit him in hospital and it was like really suffering period for my family. When you go in hospital and you see suffering of people, your point of view about life change. Yeah. And also it was completely unexpected episode in our life and it shake all our family. So when he passed away, I decided to finish my PhD. But I wanted to change my life. I didn't realize at that moment it would have been in cycling or in sport in general. I just wanted to do something big, like live life in a really quality way, giving like 200% of myself in every day. Live like it was the last day of my life every day. So I had more energy when he died. It was like living for two people. So I had more energy to do everything. And then it was casual, actually. At some point, I bought a road bike and I started to cycle. And I started with triathlon because I was a runner you before. Could, yeah, you could runner. And yeah. it was the only thing I could do, running. So I was not really good on the bike. Yeah. But triathlon is really common in UK. Yeah. So I started to do triathlon, but yeah. I still didn't have in mind to do something big. I had always did this thing in my mind. At some point, it will come. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I did my first race in duathlon, 
I realized that I was good in cycling. And then I said, okay, let's focus on cycling. And you just realized you had some talent there, even though you had trained as a runner for... Yes, I think that the motor that athletics gives you yeah. to your body is good enough right. for a good cycling. Right. Not really like elite cycling, I say it as good cycling. But if you train in a good way, then you can grow up really fast. Pretty quickly, yeah, because yeah, you pace, quick. yeah. So I start to race and then I was contacted at some point from a professional team in Italy. Mm. And I was like at my third year of my PhD, so almost finishing the PhD. So I decided to move back to Italy to meet the team. How did they find you? They just saw like you had some good results. Um, good results. And also the manager of the team was in UK, just an amatorial uh, team, yeah. was a next pro cyclist in Italy. And yet some contact with professional team in Italy. So we got in contact with the team because he suggested me, okay, you're good probably in the pro peloton. So let's try to contact the team and let's just try for yeah. a stage. So I did this stage and it was good. So I decided to move back to Italy and finish my PhD uh, just Remotely. by email because yeah, it was wow. at the end of the day was just writing the yeah. final thesis. Yeah. So I didn't need to be there. Right. But in the meantime, I was working also as a postdoc in Imperial College from Italy. And then I started my cycling adventure. After a couple of years, I realized that I found what was the original thoughts after the death of my father. Yeah. And it was like, do a world record. And the most prestigious thing in cycling is the hour record. So I said, okay, I want to do the world hour record. And then you locked in on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think what you said with living life for two people is really a stunning quote. I think that definitely resonates with me that you're able to take such a painful loss and turn that such a motivating factor in, yeah. in driving your life. And hopefully like none of our listeners need to have such a physical loss to take some of that motivation to drive and create their own dreams. So our record, you basically kind of transitioned and were spotted as a cycling talent and that kind of kicked off this cycling journey. And I think a lot of people that end up setting world records, the typical story is that there's a seven-year-old kid that just wanted to play football or wanted to play something yeah. and just did that for their entire lives. And then just like keyed in on it and had parents that like kind of trained them and like coached them up. But you were kind of a triathlete, duathlete, right? Like you were kind of runner cycling and then your cycling was just good enough to ramp up really, really quickly. Which yeah. I guess isn't like atypical for you because you kind of did the same thing with math. <laughs> right? Because yeah. like, you kind of yeah, really didn't really focus on math yeah. and then you kind of ramped up. And then I guess this similar story with cycling. So I'm scared about what will happen next. <laughs> <laughs> what was the timing on this? So you got your first sort of professional cycling slot and then you wanted to attempt the hour record and pursue that. That was like not a lot of time, right? It was no. like a couple of years or something, right? Yeah, because in 2013, yeah. I bought the bike. Yeah. And I was still falling down because I couldn't clip the shoes right. from the pedal. Yeah. So <laughs> it was like <laughs> embarrassing, I have to yeah. say, because at the cross lights, you're not still used to unclip the shoes because the shoes for cycling are not normal shoes. So right. you have to unclip the shoes. Yeah. So at the beginning, you have this like embarrassing falling down because you cannot unclip the shoes. So right. that was in 2013. Then in 2014, I was like in Fiandre. <laughs> <laughs> which is like so funny because I was already in the professional team yeah. in the pro peloton. And yeah. I have to say I wasn't ready for that because riding professionally with that peloton in races like Fiandre, yeah. you don't need just the leg, but you need to know how teams work and the tactics, strategies right. and uh, stay in a peloton of 200 riders. 
really aggressive peloton. So my experience was not really good in road racing because I, I realized that, okay, I have legs, but it's not enough. The races that were good were time trial, yeah. where I was alone, just me against the clock. Right. So I, you need technicalities in time trial too, but not as Fiandre or big races in the peloton. Hey, this is Jeff Wu jumping in here real quick to share a really nice HVMN customer testimonial. This one is from Trevor Jay, who's a student at Mississippi State. Let's listen to what he has to say about Sprint, our nootropic for acute focus. I take Sprint when I'm trying to write papers, when I have a test the next day, anything like that. I don't necessarily take Sprint on a daily basis, but I take it when I need it. I also take Sprint when I have soccer. I began experimenting with nootropics in soccer about my freshman year, I wanna say. And so I started taking it in practice. I really liked the way I was playing, the way I was thinking. And so I took it during games and now I take it every time I play soccer. I personally don't understand why more people don't take nootropics when it comes to sports because that mental side is huge when it comes to sports. You're able to think extremely clear. You're able to focus. You're narrowing in. You're not worried about who's texting you, who's Facebooking you, nothing like that. You're able to focus. Great to hear that Sprint is helping you out in both school and sport, Trevor. Thanks so much. This month's special podcast offer is 15% off our HVMN performance supplements line, which includes Sprint. Simply visit www.hvmn.com slash pod to claim the offer. Again, that is www.hvmn.com slash pod. This offer ends December 31st, 2018. Now back to the program. I didn't grow up a cycling fan, but I've obviously gotten to know the sport a little bit with working with you and other cyclists. And I think a lot of Americans, you know, some are cycling fans, but I would say like the broad majority of people like kind of know about the Tour de France. What is the strategy? What are the tactics? I mean, obviously I can speak a little bit towards this, but what are the things that you obviously saw firsthand that aren't obvious to someone who's never done or watched professional cycling? Like what are the tactics that are non-obvious in a road race? So you have to imagine there is a peloton. Yeah. And at some point there is a rider that try to escape the peloton. The brake. Yes. So it's a breakaway. Yeah. Now you have radio that connect to the car. And from the radio, you know which rider is the one that is in the breakaway. Yeah. So in that breakaway, at least one rider of every team should be there because the breakaway is going to go for the win. So you need to be sure that every team put one rider in the breakaway. So that moment in which the, the breakaway born is right. really chaotic because you can imagine that every team wants a rider in the breakaway. Right. And if the breakaway doesn't contain your rider, the team have to catch the breakaway and right. close the breakaway. Right. So this movement, it means that the peloton is really chaotic in that time that is like five minutes, even everyone's less. Everyone's shuffling and everyone's yeah, like even less. Yeah. I have to say, no, maybe, maybe not, not five minutes, but like less. 45 seconds. Yes, yeah. <laughs> less than a minute. Yeah. So if you are in the back of the bunch, you have to move forward and go on the front and try to escape or to catch the breakaway or right. to close the gap. And if you're not used to that the first time, you lose the peloton. Right. And there's like also like a huge difference between tailgating or catching people's break, right? Yeah. Well, also there are like strategies in moving around the peloton right. because it depends on the wind. Right. If there is headwind or lateral wind. And then sometimes the car call you to take water for right. the captain. Yeah. 
And so you have to go back to the car and take water and go through the peloton and give water to all team members. So it's hard. And if there is a climbing, you have to help the the climber, the leader. So there are many things that require a lot of time. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Yeah. it's so... Yeah, it's like non-obvious, right? Like it's like, but it's definitely just like, there's so much nuances at the very, very high levels. Like when do you time the breakaway? How do you, you know, So I wasn't prepared for that. That's that's the reality. I have to to be honest with myself. So for example, in team training, I realized that I had good legs with respect to the other, but it was not enough in the race because right. I didn't have these have the smart mind right. uh, to know what to do in which time. Right. So I spent like two years trying to learn in a professional team. Mm-hmm. I raced a lot around the world. It was really important for me. But mm-hmm. the time was telling me that I was good, not in road racing, but just time trial. Yeah. So me, a time trial bike, course of 20K, 30K. So an effort of 30, 40 minutes. So much more similar to athletics, where you have to run in the track for 40 minutes, maybe 30, 40 right. minutes, if you do 10,000 meters, for example. Right. So it was really like parallel, the effort. And so I realized that maybe I have to focus on that. Yeah. But just 10 trial was not enough. So I wanted to do something more. And yeah. the famous long 10 trial that last one hour is the hour record. But it's funny because yeah. when I realized that, I also realized that I wasn't able to stay on the track because I never entered in a truck. So staying in the truck means that you need to pedal on a bike that is not like a road bike. Mm. So it's a bike without brakes, which is something that already scared me. If <laughs> There's no brakes on it. Yeah, because it's dangerous. Because the thing that keeps you high in a velodrome, because you have banking angle, is the speed. So it's the centrifugal force. Yeah. So it's dangerous if you brake because you fall down. Like I didn't know that. I didn't know the velodrome bikes had no brakes. And you have fixed gear. Yeah. So you have to pedal always. Otherwise, you fall down again. Yeah. So I spent the first year in 2016 trying to understand how can I stay on the black line in the velodrome. Can we set some context on our record? So it's one of the oldest, most prestigious records in cycling. It's a very pure record because it is, again, you, your yeah. bike, and a velodrome, and controlled yeah. environment. Weather conditions are all the same for yeah. everyone. So yeah. yeah. And I know that there's like been an interesting history with that record because in a certain time gap, people could have like custom bikes that were like yeah. very, very yeah. optimized just for the velodrome where they're like almost lying down. Yeah. Like these yeah. very, very weird designs. Yeah. And now just, I think in the last few years, they just standardized the types of bikes that could set yeah. this proper hour record. It is kind of pity for me because I, I enjoyed that part of being creative with your aerodynamics, with right. your position. There were a lot of study around the several positions that they adopted right. in the past. So honestly, I'm a fan of science, so I don't find really nice to cut. The limit just into yeah, like the, limit, the standard yes. bike. If I want to investigate on some weird position, why not? I mean, it's point of view. At some point, you have to standardize everything. I understand that. But from the other point of view, it's a limit to the mind, to research. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that is sport, though. Sport is kind of a human-defined limit of how you get score things, right? It is pretty random. Why is a three-point basket? This no. line, two point, you know, everything at some levels arbitrary. So there is some arbitrary limit now, but this is the standard way that people sort of measure who is the best pure cyclist, yeah. right, for that hour. 
So let's describe the velodrome. So it's like a curved track. Yes. Or what's the steepest bank? Like a 45? Like, 45 degree. So the steepest part is a 45 degree angle. Yeah, it keeps the same for the wall length. So okay. uh, when you go out of the flat part, right. it's already at 45. So it's, it's just more scaring. Yeah, it's just more scaring when you are up because yeah. you see all the velodrome under. But yeah, it's still the same. And then when you said the black line, that's like it's the, the first track. line okay. that you meet after you leave the flat part. Okay. So it's as close as possible to the flat part. Okay. You have to stay on the black line because if you stay there, you save meter. Right. So you can ride everywhere in the velodrome. Right. But when you do the hour record, you want to be as, as close as possible. possible. Yes. Because if you go too far out, you lose time. You you do more meter. Right. So yeah. you're doing more effort per meter because yes. you're drifting. You're not pushing your energy straight in that line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also because the, the length of the track is 250 meters. Yeah. But it's measured on the black line. I see. So if you go out of the black line, you maybe do 252 meters. And you're not getting credit for it. Yeah. And that two meters, every lap at the end of... Adds up. If you have to do 200 laps, it's a lot of meters. <laughs> yeah, that's the world record. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then if you go too far in, you fall off the... You cannot because there are obstacles on the flat part. Oh, so so you, there are like sponges. I mean, you can you go down. on the sponges, but they're going to slow you down. More friction. Okay. Yeah, but also if you go like a 48, you cannot stay on the flat part because you will just will sleep. So you have to stay exactly on, on that range. Yeah. They say that four fingers from the black line is the best part to stay. So four finger up and four finger down. So it's like maybe 10 centimeter of line. Yeah. So your trajectory for one hour has to be in 10 centimeter. Right. So you're basically staring at this black line as you're pedaling for your life, essentially, as hard as you can. And like trying to track as closely as possible. And you do that for an hour. Yes. Is that like... Kind of the way for folks that are listening to kind of visualize how experience is kind of like, it's like you are staring at a line and pedaling as hard as you can and trying to keep your bike on that line. Yeah, you have to practice a lot. Yeah. Because if you try the first time, you will say, oh, okay, it's impossible. Yeah. You, probably you will be able to keep that for two laps, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you have to keep practicing also because the position is uncomfortable. So your head has to be really low. So I don't see far away. I don't see in front of me right. anything. I just see the black line yeah. because also my hands are hiding my head. Yeah, because, it's like in front of you, right? Yes, because you have to imagine like kind of Superman position. Right. So the hand, I have to hide the head yeah. to cut the wind, the hair resistance. Right. So the head is really low and you look just a little bit in front of the wheel. So visually, you see the wheel, let's say alpha meter in front of the wheel. So you're not really seeing much. No, I don't see anything. Yeah. That's why for my position was impossible to have a indication of the lap split from a computer. Right. Because some coaches use the computer to show you on a laptop the time of your lap split just at the board of the truck. Right. But for me, it was not possible to see the laptop. So my boyfriend was just shouting to me the lap split every lap. Yeah. And you were able to hear. Yes. We practice a lot of also that. Okay. So I was going to say, like, would you be distracted if someone's, you know, your boyfriend's yelling at you? Like, oh. No, you have to okay. practice everything. Also, the most obvious thing, like communicate with someone, yeah. you have to practice because it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. So visually, it's really bad because you feel alone because one hour is really long. 
Yeah. And you don't have any interaction with the external yeah, anything. When you're, when you're so in it's there, just in there. you and the black line. Yeah. That's it. So let's talk about your attempts and then your successful attempt. So obviously you had a big push in September of 2018, but you had a first attempt in 2017, right? Yeah. In October. Um, yeah. Let's talk about like that trajectory and your training and when you got confidence that, yes, this is what I want to focus the next few years of my life to be the best in the world at. As you're going off the professional cycling teams, you realize yeah. that you were, had talent for the time trials and you started practicing on the velodrome. At what point when you're playing around the velodrome were you like, okay, I'm going to go for the world record? When I started to think about this world hour record, right. it was 46 kilometers, yeah. <laughs> 273 meters. Yeah. So after a few months, it rises up to 47.980 right. right. meter. So it was scary because I was training for another distance. And at some point I have to say, okay, I have to add, uh, have to add more. <laughs> more than one kilometer. Yeah. And uh, I have to look at a new distance. So yeah. go over 48 kilometer per hour, right. which is still scary for me to say, because it's really fast yeah. <laughs> for one hour. I realized that I would have been able at the end of 2016, so after uh, one year of practicing in the track, I said, okay, with some adjustment to position and material, I can try to do that. So that was the point when I started support from sponsor, mm -hmm. technical sponsor. So the bike, the skin suites and so on. And that's because uh, your training data showed signals that like, hey. Yes, I decided to go to altitude because it should help the performance. That's something that I'm not completely sure about because it depends on how your body reacts to the altitude. Right. I really suffer the altitude. So I never did a good test at the sea level to right. compare the yeah. two things. So it's something that's remained a mystery for me about one hour at sea level. I mean, it is pretty standard. Most of the records have been set at altitude, right? Yeah. But and, and the theoretical yeah. trade-off is that while you lose some oxygen... Yeah, but, you get the aerodynamic yeah. efficiency of having less air to go through. Yeah. But, but that's something that I've been interested in from a training perspective because there is sort of conflicting data. I, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, obviously you made a decision to break the record at altitude. Yeah, but there are many factors actually yeah. around that that are a little bit polemic maybe. But yeah, I mean, subtle, is, I think it's just, there's so many like, conflicting variables. It's just not about numbers. It's also about like cost of hiring the truck. Oh. So that's the main point. That's something that I'm really angry with that because in Europe, if you want to hire a truck, one hour costs like one month in Mexico. Whoa. So hiring the truck in Mexico for one month costs the same as of hiring the truck hour. for one hour in Europe. That can be United Kingdom, Velodromes. That's, that's, that's ridiculously that can, expensive. Yes. Jeez. So can yeah. you imagine an athlete that doesn't have a professional team like Okay, Wiggins at the sky, so with a lot of money yeah. to to ride in London truck. Right. But for me, it was not really possible to train and hire the truck for the day of the event. Right. It would have been like an amount that I can even imagine. And right. also in Europe, you have to warm up the truck because you don't have weather condition that you have in Mexico. So if you have to warm up the truck, you need to pay a lot like for, a team to, to reach like to, temperature that right. are ideal for the for the hour. I want to say that people say, okay, you go to altitude, so it's easier. I go to altitude because mainly economically, economics. yeah, it's easier. 
And it's something that annoys me because I have to go to Mexico to train. Uh, I didn't know that. To, That's an interesting part of the story. I, so I like did, when Bradley Wiggins set the men's hour record, he was doing it in, in London? In London. But he said also that I'm saying at sea level because I did some tests in altitude and yeah. it's not convenient. The main thing is that your body can react not really well to the right. altitude. Right. So it's personal. There are some people that takes just a few days to adapt. Right. For me, it takes a long. And yeah. even when I adapt it, I lose too much in terms of power. Right. So I think the same. But honestly, if you are not in a professional team and you don't have a big budget, it's impossible to try to do an hour regular at sea level at the moment. I'm thinking about Australia also. It's the same. It's too much. For example, I did some winter training yeah. for the hour and I asked it to Palma de Mallorca to go there for training in yeah. the winter and the price are just like more than 200 euro for just one hour training. So when I prepared for the hour, I had to go to Mexico, even in the winter right. to train. I mean, how many hours did you spend on the, yeah, exactly. the hundreds, at, thousands at of hours? Like let's say six hours a week. So yeah. three times, two hours every time. Yeah. So it's like 1,200 euro per a week. week. Just so for track time. Who can do that? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Even if you have really big sponsor, you really need something else, some agreement with the truck or something like that. It yeah. just stacks up, right? Yeah, In Italy, definitely. it was the same. I'm really thankful to the national team that allowed me to train with them. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have spent like millions of euro. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting subtle point around like the business of sport. Yeah. That's interesting. What other things were you really dialing in? Obviously, aerodynamics, obviously, selection of the course and being able to have enough hours on the course, you're really, really comfortable with the course. You mentioned weather as an interesting variable because if there's certain types of storm fronts or types of air density, that would have impact the attempt. Nutrition, what are some of the other variables that you had to really dial in that you can share with our audience? My experience was that position was one of the most crucial things. Mm -hmm. For example, my previous attempt, the one that I failed, yeah. was mainly because my position was not studied in a very good way in the mm. sense that I was trying to be too much aero, but biomechanically, I was not efficient. So you really need to find a good compromise. Mm. I had like my sponsor, that uh, drug to zero that allowed me to go to the wind tunnel. Mm. So we did some tests, was the first thing that we did after the first attempt right. to really see, okay, Maybe I go higher in position. Aerodynamically, I lose something, but I'm much more efficient in pedaling. I don't lose power and things like that. So sometimes we are obsessed with being aerodynamics as much as possible, but you really always have to think about how your body reacts. Right. It's the same discussion of the altitude. It's like, okay, theoretically, it's like that. But this kind of thing you have to consider personally, how your body reacts to position, to altitude. Nutrition is the same. Yeah. I cannot be on too strict diets because <laughs> I get crazy. Yeah. So I prefer to like be obsessed by, for example, heat healthy, right. but not too much strict diet. Interesting. Yeah. Because I think a lot of our audience members play with fasting, ketogenic diets, low carb diet. So how would you describe your diet? I try to avoid unhealthy food. Okay. But if I'm hungry, I don't restrict myself too much. If I right. want like a dish of pasta, which is like more full of Carbs. usual, yeah. I will just go for it. Right. If, I mean, not every day. It has to be a good compromise. So mm -hmm. not every day I feel like hungry and I want a lot of right. pasta. It's just sometimes if I want it, why not? 
Right. Because I don't want to be too restrictive because I come from training. I suffered a lot. And right. it's like a price. So sometimes you have just to give price to your body, to your mind. Yeah, there's individuality towards what the body responds better to. And I think for people that have weight management issues when they're an athlete, then you might want a more strict dietary intervention. But if you don't have weight management issues, then you just want things that give you ample amount of power. It's just like figuring out what works for you, right? For you, it's like you just are less strict on the macro ratios. You're, You're not really calorie counting any of that. No, I tried. Okay. I tried to count calories. It was not it's, useful for it's, you? It's useful if you can do it. Yeah. But it depends how you react psychologically. Yeah. I feel too stressed about counting calories. Right. So I just said, okay, let's be focused on trying a good compromise. Right. Some days you are more hungry. Let's eat a little bit more if you feel that. Right. Trying always to avoid a lot of oil, uh, topping and this kind of fried things. Yeah. So I think I found a good compromise. Yeah. It's different, for example, always about nutrition, about integration. So I'm really obsessed about being really precise on nutrition around the usual food that you have for lunch and dinner. So right. integration of protein, drinking ketone at the right time, right. Uh, in the right quantities, and uh, investigate about why I have to take protein, why I have to take ketone at this time of the day. Okay, so you care more about timing. Yeah, it's exactly. like very important. Yeah, timing and quantities. Yeah. Don't forget to give your vitamins like every day, yeah. your shake every day. So I'm quite obsessed about this side of nutrition. Do you have tight eating windows? Because some athletes have shorter eating windows or they have a lot of meals all the time right after workouts. Do you try to tighten your eating windows, for example, in, in the sense that you have a late breakfast or... You do fasted training sometimes. Yeah. Do you play around with periodizing diet with your training blocks? Or is it pretty regimented every single day? Like you have a set day and you don't really change up your routines? Uh, in the winter, I change it. Okay. Because, yeah, fasted dried are really common in the winter yeah. because you're like starting again. So you're a little bit fat. <laughs> yeah, you want to get the you metabolic from flexibility. Holidays yeah, and, perfect. You know, okay. like every athlete on holidays, just, just eat like... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think it's normal. It's good to kind of break the rule right. during the holiday. So you need to start again with fasted rides. Yeah. And um, it's good training for your metabolism, ramp up your fat oxidation because yeah. you don't have like all this glucose and ketones floating around. You need to yeah. train your muscles to be able to dig into its reserves. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So, yes, I play a little bit in the winter. While during the race time, yeah. I have my timetable, my food, and every day I have to be consistent with the other. Yeah. Also because on the race day, you don't want any surprise. So the day before, I prepare everything in chronological order on the table. And I'm really, really precise, really obsessive because I suffer a lot of stomach problems. So if I don't respect my quantities and my time to eat and drink in the race, I really have problems. Yeah, that's one thing that I think a lot of non-athletes don't realize the impact. I mean, I wasn't necessarily a serious athlete and GI issues for fueling just seemed like, how is that even a concern? But as I've gotten more into training myself and of course, talking with professionals like yourself, GI is a huge factor for all of this stuff. It's surprising that it's such a big impact. GI is such an important thing to manage, which is kind of surprising for non-professionals. You think, oh, like, you know, I don't really have diarrhea problems. But like when you're exerting that hard, you really have those kinds of issues. It depends on the efforts you're going to do. 
in training, sometimes you can have small changes in your diet. Yeah. It will affect you. But the thing is that you never reach in training the effort you have to reach in race. Yeah. Don't ask me why. Probably it's the adrenaline of right. the race that you push yourself really beyond your limits, much right. more than in training. So in training, you can do a little bit of changes. Also because there are many more days of training with respect to race. So right. it happened that sometimes, for example, the day before you can have a dinner out with friends and you drink a glass of wine, for example, you feel that yeah, in the, sure. the day, the day after. Yeah. You feel everything. So it can be that you are not perfect every day in training. But in the race, if you do something wrong, you will pay that. Yeah. So it will be a moment in which you have so much problem, your legs feel heavy, you have ADH yeah. because digestive problem. And right. So I'm really careful about that. So what does like the meal structure look like? What are the typical things that you eat? So the first thing in my day is coffee. Okay. I try to avoid sugar. Okay. And then I have a uh, hot with milk. Semi skimmed milk, yeah. so about fat milk. Okay. And then I usually have a protein pancake or uh, some integral bread with some protein like ham or mm. smoked salmon. Mm -hmm. And then it depends on the effort I'm going to do. If there are strong effort, like a race test or something like that, right. I stop eating like four hours before the, the effort. Mm -hmm. Three, four hours. Are you kind of snacking up towards it or just like you have your breakfast? I was used to have some snack since I tried Keton. Yeah, that okay. Keton like <laughs> was a re revolutionary part of my <laughs> life. Because when you drink Keton, then you don't feel the necessity of eating more. So right. I drink my Keton when I know I have to drink it. Okay. And then I'm okay. Maybe I just drink some carbo drink or right. electrolyzed drinking. But not much. It's a little bit of liquid just to yeah, keep and, your and mouth. Yeah, and I can train without eating anything. Also because for the hour, you don't train like six hours. So you have to do some quality riding. So it will be like two hour riding, full gas riding. But it's like two, maximum three hour usually. Mm -hmm. So I'm just careful to hit straight after the training. As I don't have any food during training, you have to be careful to have some recovery, drinking, shake, right. protein, electrolytes, vitamin, amino acid. Have you tried ketone for recovery as well? Or are you mainly using it as a pre-fuel? I use mainly as pre-fuel. Okay. I have to say, so I, I do this shake yeah. and then I do shower and everything at some point of lunch, a kind of lunch. Right. It's, it's not proper lunch because usually it's at three o'clock in the afternoon because the routine is quite long, I have to right. say. So I have this kind of light lunch. I eat everything, but the quantities are small, like some pasta or rice, yeah. uh, chicken and salad, this kind of thing. So right. it's just one dish, but with a little bit of everything. Yeah. Then a snack before dinner, like a yogurt or some walnuts. So you would say like fairly lighter towards the end of the day in terms of yeah. your caloric load. Yeah, because my breakfast is, is really big, so yeah. I can go until like three o'clock. Yeah. And also I think that one of the effects of keto is that it keeps your uh, appetite down. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. We definitely should talk offline and figure out if we should experiment with recovery aspects. A lot of the Tour de France feedback has been on the recovery side. They feel fresher with the legs post-exertion. So we should experiment with that. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about the attempt in September and then the eventual breaking the world record. So you had two attempts back to back. <laughs> I mean, one, that's crazy because like we went like, what, like 40 minutes or so? 44. 44 <laughs> minutes. 
going as hard as you can and then you stop and then you go again the next day and then actually break the record. Can you talk us through that? What was going through your head? What went wrong the first day? What yeah. was that story? So the story is that I was unlucky with the weather on 12th of September, so yep. the first day. When I wake I up, Michael, like we we're talking, like when when is Vittoria gonna do it? And Michael is saying the weather, like we don't know exactly the date anymore. I know so because we, yeah, there we was a storm in the night. Yeah. So when I wake up in the morning, it was so cold. And I, I was many months in Mexico in my yeah. life, and I never experienced such a cold weather. Yeah. So as I was saying before, when you have not really good temperature, their density change. Yeah. And this means that you have to change also your power. Mm. And so we are speaking about marginal gains. So if the air density is not exactly what you want, it's going to be like difficult and struggling to break the world record. So we measure the air density and we decide with my coach to don't try that day because it was really too cold. And also there are no warming up ventilation in Mexico trucks. Mm. So it was like 20 degree, even less. And it's cold, even for a training, it's cold. Yeah. So we decided to go there just for spinning the legs and yeah. just for a training to prepare the legs for the day after yeah. because I booked the truck for two days. Right. So it was okay with commissar and everything. So I went there just for training and I was relaxed because it was no more the day of race. Right. It was just a training day. So yeah. I was relaxed and put the music as usual. And at some point the sun came out yeah. and the sun in Mexico is strong. So the velodrome in less than one hour rise from up. 20 degrees to 32, maybe. So Celsius. it was, was warm enough, yeah. really warm, actually. Yeah. And so there was like confusion about what can I do now? Why I have to lose a day? Yeah. Because now the weather conditions are perfect, actually, to try. So like in 15 minutes, I decided, OK, I'm warmed up. Let's go. I was like really stupid because it's the adrenaline of the day, I understand, yeah. but I should have been like more quiet because I decided with my coach not to start, right. try the next day and I shouldn't be influenced by, by anything else. Right. But you're like, excited. Yeah. I was so emotional that day that I took a decision that was the wrong one. Right. So when I started, my legs felt really good, yeah. I have to say, because I was in a good shape, yeah. but mentally I was never prepared. I was really close yeah. because at 40 minutes, I was at 47.920. So like okay. just 60 meter beyond under, sorry, the yeah. record pace. Yeah. My boyfriend was shouting to me the lap splits and sometimes he said, speed up, speed up yeah. because we are close, but we are not on the record pace. Right. And I just couldn't. That is the difference between training and racing. So in racing, you have to really push a little bit than usual training. And if you have the right adrenaline, you can push yeah. that limit. Right. If you're in training, you push a lot. You feel like dying. Right. But it's never like a race. Right. And in that day, I was like more in a training mood. Your racing. mental game wasn't there. Yes. Yeah. I had to speed up just a little bit, but I was already in an uncomfortable zone. Right. So I said, I cannot speed up more. So I just said to myself, okay, let's try to sprint a little bit, see if I speed up. Yeah. I wouldn't speed up. And so at 44 minutes, I decided to stop. Yeah. And everyone was surprised because I was... You were close. Yeah. From outside, you cannot yeah. realize that yeah. we are not breaking the hour because right. I was so close, but I wanted really to break the hour record yeah. this time. So I was confident I could do. So I decided to do the day after. When so I came 44 back minutes home, and you were just like, okay, today is not the day. Like yeah. I want to stop. There was so much adrenaline. Yeah. It was a decision that was taken like from instinct. Yeah side of your body right but 
when I came back home, I realized my choice. I start to cry. Because <laughs> like, I mean, you were going as hard as you could, right? For 45 yeah. minutes. I mean, that's a lot of exertion. Yeah, yeah. But So you so were tired, right? I, I was okay. so tired. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Again, another stupid choice. Yeah. I was wrong with everything. I was wrong with the decision of starting. Yeah. I was starting with the decision of stopping. Yeah. So I was wrong with everything. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm, I'm wasting like my opportunity. Yeah. But then maybe it was this sensation that day. Yeah. If I wouldn't push everything, I would have lost all the last two, three days. Right. Two, three years of my life. Right. So that kind of sensation of survival that give me that extra energy to go. Yeah. But the first minutes of the ride the day after, it was awful because the legs were so heavy. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, the, I'm sure the, you're exhausted. So, you, so yeah, what was the night? Like between the 12th and the 13th, you go home, you feel frustrated, angry at yourself. Yeah. You're crying. We had a pizza. Okay, that's <laughs> that you up a little bit. Yeah, because we couldn't eat again rice and chicken like usually. Yeah. So we just need to relax because there was too much tension. It was just me and my boyfriend yeah. there. So we were scared. We were like disappointed. So we yeah. said, okay, let's just relax. Let's take a pizza. Let's see a movie yeah. and do some stretching and then go to bed. Yeah. So we go to bed and I, I kept well? crying. No, I kept crying I like know, until three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, okay. I was so nervous because... Yeah. I wanted to find the energy yeah. and I wouldn't find the energy I needed for a world record. Right. It was like that, I think, until the morning. What, like four or five hours of sleep? Yes, probably. So okay. what was everything was against the planning, so yeah. against the perfect day of a race yeah. that an athlete won. So when I entered the velodrome, I realized that was really my last opportunity to give a sense of my last two or three years. I spoke a lot with my father. I'm not religious, so I don't think there is something after the death. Right. But for some reason, you know, I said, I feel like living to life. So I said, okay, we are two people now. So we are a team. And I had this extra energy to give it all. Right. And also my boyfriend was so supportive. So that day, actually, he was shouting to me, not much the lap speed, but shouting encouraging words right. every lap. And after 20 minutes... My legs start to feel better. Right, because you're still sore, but you, you yes, need that. And the, you're, yeah, the first even during, don't, even during the warm up, did you know that? Yes. You knew you were a little off, but your mind was like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do yes. this, I'm going to do this. Yes, I was so focused. My mind was so focused. Also, because I've done hard training, yeah. so I said, okay, Give I did Stelvio climbing. Yeah. Like Saturday and Sunday, I did already, like two consecutive days. I've right. done many times. So it would be like, suffering but at You've the end of the before. day yeah I've done yeah. it before so I don't have to be scared yeah so after 20 minutes I start to feel better and the worst part is the middle part because at the middle you you're, still so you're far not away. fresh right. anymore and you don't see the hand yeah so the minutes between 20 and 40 were the more riskous but I felt actually better than the first part okay. so that, that encouraged me right after 40 minutes I speed up so much right like riding at 48 and uh, 500 yeah average so that was the point in which I started to believe it was possible yeah so the last 20 minutes were the best 20 minutes <laughs> of my life I think because it was so exciting I felt so fast yeah. and uh, plenty of energy and I was seeing the dream really approaching to me. I was like yeah. dreaming about that in the last three years. And at some point I said, okay, I'm just 20 minutes away from the dream. So 
it was so exciting. When I stopped, I didn't realize the anything. I was just shouting to release the, the adrenaline. Yeah. But you had yeah, no idea it, it you took a little bit it? to realize that I broke the record. Wow. Yeah. And when you knew you were on pace and over pace, it sounded like you were joyful that you were living out this dream. Was it not distracting to think about winning or were you focused on like, I guess like thinking about winning or breaking a world record, was it not distracting while you're still in the attempt? On the contrary, it was like it was uh, pushing me. Okay. Yeah. So I was saying, okay, yeah. I will do that. So it was really the my motivation. And then when you finished, you didn't even realize. For no, that. because actually it was just 27 meters, which means like it's I broke so it for three seconds, maybe. Yeah. So I, I wanted to be sure. And my boyfriend said, you did it. So I started to shout <laughs> what to think. And the first thing that I did was to kiss the truck <laughs> because you know, it's just you and the truck. So yeah. it was like... I was thankful with the truck. It's just, you have this sensation of respect yeah. and love to the truck because I spent so much time with, with her. Right. So the first thing that, that I did before kissing my boyfriend was kissing the truck. <laughs> <laughs> I was thankful with my boyfriend because he did everything for me, really. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not just something that you expect from a human being. It was like psychological support, mechanic, physiotherapist, every, a friend, uh, so everything. So it, it was my, my team in that moment because, you know, that hours were really difficult because when I stopped the first time uh, on 12, it's like you feel also embarrassed to explain to the world, uh, to your sponsor, right. you know, that they are believing in you. So it's difficult to give them a justification to right. say them what's going on. So... I just switch off the phone, give to my boyfriend and said, okay, give me a few hours more and I have to realize this dream for everyone that is believing in me. Yeah. So we were just two at the end. It must have been such a culmination of so many different things to finally achieve and, and break a world record. Yeah. What did the rest of the night look like? Was it like eat more, some, eat more pizzas or, <laughs> like, or just like, I just want to sleep? It's weird to say, but I didn't want to relax too much. Huh. because I knew that my season wasn't finished. So if I say to my body, I'm done and relax, even for one day, I think that my body would have relaxed too much yeah. because I was really looking to have some rest. So I have to be careful to keep my body protect from freedom. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's it's weird to say, but I had to go back on the bike the day after Whoa. to keep training because I <laughs> like, I to other races yeah. in, in the season and I know my shape was good yeah. so I really wanted to, to perform well in competition especially with other athletes yeah. because I was out of competition for two years and for me it was really important to go back to competition right. so I wanted to keep like celebration really small yeah. So yeah, we had the dinner and the, the day after I was like chatting a lot with friends and the photos yeah. and the journalists from Italy. Right. So it was a party environment, but I, I had but my training, I had my it. training, yeah. I had my food. Uh, I didn't change much from my routine, I have to say. And this pay off because I had my two last races were really good. So yeah. after the 14th of October... So after one month of training, after the hour, like relax and right. party and enjoy the success of the season. Well-deserved. So looking ahead, what's next? I know that obviously you have big dreams ahead. When you talk about accomplishing a dream, is there a next dream? What is that next dream? 
Is yeah. there always going to be a next dream? So the dream, first of all, would be like keep cycling. Yeah. Because it's not obvious, especially for a female cyclist. We don't have any contract in Italy, especially because it's still not recognized as a job. Mm. So it's all about teams and sponsors. So the, the first dream would be keep going with cycling. Yeah. And then if I would be able to train, I really would like to do another step forward. So concentrating in uh, 10 trial races. And still doing a lot of track because I think that track training is really the key of a good training on the road too. And I I would like to do a good performance at the national and also in international time trial. So trying to keep my story a little bit particular. So I don't want to be like in a team, in a professional team. I want to keep going with my story and do some quality job in time trial. Because it's, I've been always thinking that time trial is something different from road racing. Mm-hmm. So it's still cycling, but they are completely different. And you need to focus just on time trial if you want to specialize in time trial. So I want to pursue the, this street of being a good quality athlete in time trial and inspire, especially in my country, where the culture of time trial is not so high, like in uh, Netherlands, like in uh, UK or here in US. Right. There are really good time trial and we don't have really good time trial mm. in Italy. So I would be like, try to... Almost build a sport in your home yes, country. Yes, that that would be the main thing. So yeah. I'm looking for good performances yeah. in time trial. And hopefully 2020? Uh, yeah, it's, it's the dream of every athlete. So, but yeah, it's really a dream for now. Yeah. So it's like thinking about the hour record three years ago. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, I think given your track record and your dedication here, I mean, just got to keep plugging at it every single day. Yeah. Yeah. So where do our listeners follow you? How do they keep on top of your story? Obviously, we'll stay updated and, and continue to have these conversations as your career evolves in the cycling world. But how do people follow you? Twitter, yeah. uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook. Mm-hmm. And usually I, I like it's Vittoria to... Vittoria Bussi? Yes. Vittoria Bussi, 87 for Facebook. Okay. But yeah, you can find me uh, like by Vittoria Bussi. I have a personal page and a athlete page profile. Yeah. So I like to post some of my training, uh, my adventure out of the bikes. It would be nice to follow me. It's a rare opportunity to you know get in the mind of someone who just recently broke a world record. So again, congratulations and Thank you very thanks much. for having the conversation. Thank you. Thank you very Cheers. much. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Remember to check out www.hvmn.com slash pod for this month's special podcast offer. For December 2018, that offer is 15% off our entire HVMN performance supplements line. This is the perfect holiday gift for your friends, family, or even just treating yourself. Are you interested in getting $15 worth of HVMN store credit that you can use on our website? Submit a written review on our iTunes page and send that screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com. Our podcast email line is always open for your suggestions, feedback, and questions. Until next week, friends, stay sharp and train smart.